0: We sit in the Kids Cancer Centre and my team is called the Behavioural Sciences Unit and our aim is really to improve outcomes for families affected by childhood cancer. So how we do that is through research and so we spend a lot of time talking with families, um, mums, dads, brothers and sisters, patients of course, even grandparents finding areas where the cancer experience is particularly difficult and then trying to work out ways to make it better.
1: Welcome to Season 1 of Healthier Today, a podcast from AB Sound Production. I'm your host, Jared Talavero, public health advocate. You'll hear stories of individuals from around the world who have undergone tremendous triumphs to live healthier today. They also offer you lessons to do the same. In today's episode, we have Claire Wakefield, child cancer psychology researcher. For many people, hearing that their child is being diagnosed with cancer is their worst nightmare. Professor Wakefield, head of the behavioral sciences unit for the Kids Cancer Center at the Sydney Children's Hospital, explains nobody wants to hear the words, your child has been diagnosed with cancer. Can you tell me, how did you first discover paediatric psycho? Oncology?
0: It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Probably by accident, I guess. I don't know how many people say that, but certainly for me, I didn't set out for a career in paediatric psycho oncology. But looking backwards, it makes sense, if you know what I mean. So my first, I went into psychology as my undergrad degree and then looking for my first job when I finished my honours, there was two jobs I applied for in the same week and I got an interview for both and I really wanted both uh, and only one of them gave it to me and that really determined my path. So one of them was in postnatal depression and sort of looking at mental health in mums and the other one was working in a hereditary cancer clinic looking at the mental health outcomes in families affected by cancer. And I only got the cancer job and so I took it. And then um, I worked in adult cancer for quite a while. And that's what psycho-oncology is really, is looking at the mental health of people affected by cancer. But when I finished my PhD there, the NHMRC, which is our sort of common funding body from the government, uh, requires you to change to something a little bit different in terms of your postdoctoral work. And so it made a really nice segue to move from adult cancer to children's cancer. And that fitted actually with my path because I had worked during my degree with children with autism and with children with blindness and with young people with brain injury. And so I had done a lot of work in children. So it was sort of the natural next step to approach the Kids Cancer Centre and say, could I do my postdoc with you guys? And that's it, really. I just stayed there because I was really happy and I loved the work. Yeah, and I I have a suspicion I might be there for a long time to come.
1: How big was psycho-oncology when you were first starting out?
0: It was pretty small. So it started in the US and sort of one of the key kind of matriarchs who started the field, a woman called Jimmy Holland, was a psychiatrist who worked at Memorial Sloan Kettering in, in New York and she started looking at mental health outcomes in cancer patients probably about 30 or 40 years ago and then it sort of trickled to other places around the world as a more of a profession because it's not like people didn't know that cancer was difficult and that mental health was a problem in cancer patients, more that the field as itself got its name and became a sort of profession about 30 or 40 years ago. And it was sort of very fledgling in Australia. Um, when I started doing my PhD, there was a number of people who'd just started in the field. Uh, and then when I worked moved to the Kids Cancer Centre, it was just me. So I sort of grew a unit from there. And now we're 35 people just based in the Kids Cancer Centre at Sydney Children's Hospital and also at UNSW. So it's really grown exponentially over the last kind of 10 or 15 years as people prioritise that part of the cancer experience now that we have lots of treatments and things, I think.
1: So could you give our listeners um, an idea of what your, your job entails?
0: Yep. We sit in the Kids Cancer Centre and my team's called the Behavioural Sciences Unit and our aim is really to improve outcomes for families affected by childhood cancer. So how we do that is through research And so we spend a lot of time talking with families, um, mums, dads, brothers and sisters, patients, of course, even grandparents, finding areas where the cancer experience is particularly difficult and then trying to work out ways to make it better. So as one example, a number of years ago, we were interviewing teenagers and young adults who'd finished their cancer treatment and realised that when they finish treatment, they go home to their homes and they're really looking forward to it. Like it's the most exciting thing. They've been focusing on this goal of finishing treatment and going home. But then we heard this really common theme around, actually, it's really difficult when they get home. They're quite surprised about potentially how lonely or isolated they feel surprised how hard it is to integrate back into school if they've had months or sometimes years off school and there's no one really to talk about it with and they're very aware that the hospital is busy treating new patients and so there's not really a natural support mechanism for them so we heard all of this information and then I guess what's unique about us in the the, In our focus on translating to real uh, outcomes, we then developed an intervention. So we called it Recapture Life, which is kind of getting that idea of going back to your life. And we developed it as a six-week online resilience program where young people can actually get together on Skype in groups all around the country uh, so that one one group can have young people from all around the country. And they get together for six weeks online with a facilitator and they go through a program with us of talking about what's it like going home, how are you uh, integrating back into uni or to school. Uh, And they get a lot of peer support from each other and then they can kind of problem solve and you know, understand the problem together. And the hope is that that sort of reduces the sense of isolation, gives them some skills to settle back into life, you know, integrate back to where they want to be in their community. So that's kind of one example of the sorts of programs that we have found a need for and then identified a potential solution and then trialled that. And now it's offered by multiple community organisations around the country to be delivered to any of their members. So, for example, Canteen or Cancer Council, they both run it for their members so people can access it for free when they would like to.
1: According to global statistics from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, there were 848 more under-5 mortalities due to cancer than motor vehicle accidents. I think one of the things is, is that... We don't realize like how important social connections are. Yeah. Th- this is something that I've also spoken to former Movember CEO Adam Garoni about, and Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Robert Waldinger about, mm. and they've all said your your health improves through social connections. So, what have you seen, or how has social connections impacted the health of of these of these teens?
0: Well, I think there's probably no more important age group for having social connection than being a young person. It's sort of the time when you're developing your independence away from your parents and working out your identity. And that is often done in relation to others. And so young people have a real need to feel like they have a sense of belonging, that someone understands them and what they're going through. And so that can be really disrupted when they have a really different course in life than their peers. And so if their peers are all focused on going to the formal and that big day and it's, you know, a big... Uh, focus for their year, and then they're sort of pulled out of that to go through a completely different, very scary, intense experience that absolutely creates a disconnect in how they feel connected to young people other young people. That's critically important, and we see it for all types of young people. So, really sporty boys, for example, who suddenly can't play rugby anymore, they have to find a new way of interacting with their peers. If that's not addressed, then it can lead to longer term mental health problems like isolation and loneliness and even things like depression and anxiety. And it's often not through, it's, it's often their the friends also have good intentions. So it's not that the friends abandon them. It's just often really difficult to know how to connect when you have such different life experiences.
1: Right. So what can pick those, friends do to to support their, their friends with, with cancer? What are some of the ways that you've addressed
0: that? Yeah, good question. Uh, my suggestion, the first suggestion would be to ask, what can I do um, directly to the young person? Because different things are helpful to different people at different times. So you can't have a really blanket suggestion around what what one person would appreciate, probably not the same as what somebody else would appreciate. I think just staying connected, checking in, offering to do practical things that, uh, you know, would be of benefit and just checking in, I think, and checking in about, is there anything I can do this weekend? I'm free. Making it a little bit easier for for the patient to feel like they can say yes. So rather than just saying, is there anything I can do? <laughs> That's kind of very open and would make it quite difficult for someone to say, Yes, please, can you do this specific thing? So you might want to tailor it a little bit to, I'm free on Sunday afternoon. Is there anything I could do to pick anything up for you because I know you can't drive? Or can I dr- cook something for you because I love cooking? You know, so offer a little bit more specifics. You might, it might be easier for the patient to say yes and accept the help. And just, hang in there for the long haul. One of the things our families tell us is that people can be really helpful in the first kind of crisis, in the first sort of three or four weeks. And that's really lovely. But then they kind of slip back into their old lives. And if the if the patient is not there, sometimes for, you know, on and off for two or three years, it becomes very clear that people kind of just disappear off into their own lives and everyone's busy, et cetera. So I'd say also stay in it for the long haul, so check in on people more than just in the first four weeks where it's all a crisis, but more, you know, six months, 12 months, two years down the track, still make the effort to make the, keep that connection going.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you have, say, a, a teenager that is passionate about sport but they're not allowed to get, play sport because of their condition or not allowed to play sport yet... How do you manage those those goals with them?
0: Yeah, it's a tricky one. It can actually be a real sense of loss for people because young people can have that as a really big part of their identity. We have an exercise program, actually a program of work researching ways for patients to become physically active again and it might be uh, one of them for example we're trialing an app at the moment one of our PhD students app called iBounce and I think we always want people to stay active during treatment and afterwards but it might be required tailoring to what the person's capable of and so it may not be rugby for a certain period of time it may be something else and then progressing back to rugby for example it really depends on the person and their, their goals, what the treatment has done to them, what the cancer has done to them. So we have a couple of exercise physiologists in our team who do individualised programs to try and get people active again and not only physically fit but also socially
1: connected through their activities. It is not just a patient who feels trauma from a cancer diagnosis. It is also their immediate family members who feel the psychological distress. Wakefield and her research team identified the negative effects cancer can have on a family to help them traverse the really scary, difficult time that is cancer treatment. Wakefield explains...
0: One of the nice things about my group, well, we are a research group, but one of the nice things we've been able to do is often have higher people on a co-appointment with the hospital. So they actually have a role in the hospital. So one of our, um, as one example, one of our most senior uh, clinical psychologists, Ursula sanson Daly, who's been with the BSU for a long, long time, she is she works three days a week for the BSU doing research and then she does two days a week in the youth cancer service as the clinical psychologist for that service. And that kind of integration is fantastic because she she sees issues potentially appearing in the clinic and then she's able to take that back to us and then craft programs or um, interventions that might help those families that she saw on the ward. It's also really important for us to keep, broader connections as well Um, and we do that by we have a set of clinical champions who are kind of people who work in the clinical environment but we meet with them regularly and get feedback from them and learn from them and they come to us with research ideas, for example, Um, that includes the director of the unit, multiple oncologists, lots of nurses, the bereavement counsellor, our genetic counsellor, so those sorts of people kind of keep us connected on the ward and then we do other things so we do the nurse uh there's like a nurse professional development program so we speak at that you know trying to bridge the gaps wherever we can between the research and the hospital clinic environment and with as many different types of professions as possible and the social work as well and yeah and then also trying to keep connected with the more Laboratory based research, um, which is at the Children's Cancer Institute, because sometimes there's overlaps there when they're developing new drugs, for example, and we want to then look at the quality of life impacts of this new drug that they've discovered. So it's sort of behavioural sciences, laboratory research, and the clinic all working together uh, wherever we
1: can. It's amazing to see how multidisciplinary pediatric oncology treatment has become in the past. How was psychology involved in cancer treatment?
0: I think people have very, you know, lovely doctors, caring doctors like oncologists always knew there was a big need for psychosocial support for families. Often that was provided through nursing staff and nurses play an invaluable role in helping families to cope. They're there every day, they're there in the middle of the night when parents are feeling upset, that sort of thing. And then there's always been a strong involvement with social work and social work does a lot of that work as well. And they can help families in really practical ways but also provide counselling, et cetera. And then I'm not sure actually when psychologists kind of became standard to be part of the team as well. I know our psychologist on the ward has been there a long time, I think maybe 20 years, 15, 20 years, probably sooner than in adult cancer because I think everything is more intense in the paediatric setting. And then it's just grown from there to be more and more multidisciplinary. And so then there's occupational therapy, there's play therapy, there's music therapy, there's psychology, um, there's bereavement counselling. There's all sorts of different, there's genetic counselling. So there's all sorts of different disciplines who can contribute physiotherapy. All of those disciplines contribute something to make, uh, I guess, the best possible care for that family.
1: Through her research, Wakefield has found evidence that suggests without support, both parents, patients, brothers and sisters can develop anxiety, depression and PTSD relating to a cancer diagnosis. So you mentioned a little bit before how paediatric oncology is affects them differently than to adults. Can, can you explore that a little bit more? How does cancer affect the mental health and quality of life of children and, and teens differently to adults.
0: I often say it's it's everything that's in adult cancer, but with higher stakes and higher impacts. I think uh, in when you're thinking about a child with cancer, so everything's more complex because it's a a child and their family who become the unit of care, I guess. So In adult oncology, the focus really is on the patient. Uh, In our centre, the focus is on the whole family as the unit of care. And interestingly, parents are probably not surprising parents are known to have higher levels of distress and more support needs than patients themselves. Um, so, I um, mean, that makes sense. If you see your child suffering, it actually hurts you more than even the child. And so there's a lot more work to be done to support parents. Emotionally, they sort of asking questions like, why did this happen to my child? I would have preferred it even to happen to me than my child how do I be a good parent in this environment? And then also, I think logistically, paediatric cancer can have a bigger impact because often mums or dads need to quit work to look after the child for many months of treatment in the hospital and at home. So there's actually often logistical and financial impacts um, on the whole family. And then looking after children with cancer is really quite complex because we have babies through to, 16 or 18-year-olds on the ward together. And as you can make sense, they're completely different. So what you say to a three-year-old about their treatment is going to be completely different to what you say to a 10-year-old is going to be completely different to what you say to an 18-year-old. And so that means providing care needs to be much more individualised to that family and that family's needs because every child is quite different. Other things that are different, I think, for adult cancer is childhood cancer is rarer. There are many, many types of cancer that children get. So actually their their types of cancer are individually quite rare. And so I think there's sometimes more of a sense of isolation because there's not a lot of other people like them. And so that builds again then on that sense of this is a really one in a million thing that's terrible that's happened to my family and no one else can understand. And so that's can be a unique element for us to manage and then there's the wider family which is much more involved in terms of as often brothers and sisters and so their needs are really important we have a big program looking at the needs of um, brothers and sisters called sib stars Uh, and then other people in the family like grandparents we did a lot of work um, some of the first in the world to show grandparents actually carry a really heavy burden and they actually can have really significant levels of anxiety and depression because they're often in the background uh, supporting the family. So if, if one of the parents is working, one of the parents is at the hospital then somebody else has to pick up the brothers and sisters from school, cook them dinner, take them to this thing, look after their homework. All of those sorts of things often end up being a grandparenting role and that's quite difficult when they're managing their own kind of getting older, et cetera. So I think you can sort of see that sort of higher stakes and kind of bigger spread uh, in paediatrics and why there's just so much work to be done in the space to try and help to contain that and help help families to get through it.
1: Certainly. So whilst you were talking about that, I was thinking about one of the guests that I interviewed last year, and she has a rare genetic condition called cystic fibrosis, which Mm. means that uh, by the time she's in her 30s, her life expectancy is going to decrease. So she's only expected to live until she's about 37. How do you educate families and individuals with cancer that their life expectancy may be shorter than the average person because I imagine that could be a sense of anxiety for some people.
0: Absolutely. It's terrifying, to be honest. Yeah, we have quite a bit of work in this space as well. Two big projects that have looked at Preparing for end of life. We have really excitingly, you know, great survival rates now in childhood cancer. Um, so, the general story is quite positive for families when they're diagnosed. The, the story is that uh, for most childhood cancers now, the chances of your child surviving are good. And so, that's a really positive story, and hopefully, that's going to continue to get more and more positive with more and more families coming through and out the other side. But then it's really difficult because there is still some cancers that are really hard to treat and sometimes things don't go like you plan and so even in a case where in general this is a treatable cancer but for some reason it's not treatable in that child then you have to move to those conversations around end of life and that can be incredibly difficult and I think harder when it's children because it's like a reversal of the natural order of life. And so it feels more outrageously tragic and wrong for families. And so in the sort of preparing for end-of-life conversations area, Ursula, who I mentioned before, has a lovely body of work looking at young people's desires and needs at that time. And um, she has a program called Voicing My Choices, which actually came from the US about helping young people to say what they want and I think the first thing to say is they very often do want to talk about these things because they actually do think about it and I think that's completely natural and so tend to try not to avoid the conversation um, because that's not that helpful and actually they can manage to talk about all sorts of difficult things and once they've talked about it with their family, it makes them feel more comfortable that their family knows what they think. And so the Voicing My Choices program is around help giving a sort of structure. It's actually in a booklet form where the young person can actually specifically say what they want to happen for everything if the um, chances of cure are getting lower and lower. And so they can at least share what they want to do with with their possessions or how they want their funeral to run or what music they'd like to play. And those things sound really difficult to talk about but better to talk about them than have them worrying by themselves at night, thinking these things alone. And so that's kind of our focus is really around encouraging communication and supporting communication. And then we have another program for parents if they become bereaved. And we have created videos to help parents to feel more connected, sharing each other's stories. We have a book for parents. And so we don't want to forget about that group because the last thing you want is for them to feel another sense of isolation because not only did their child have cancer but they also didn't survive and that, you know, you don't want them to feel even more isolated at that point and so that's our kind of approach to both end of life and then bereavement support as well.
1: Is there any research that you've done or any research that you are aware of in where a young couple who have a child passes away from cancer, does that affect mm-hmm. their ability to, to have another child? Does it affect them emotionally to have another child?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's, there's probably not a lot of hard data around that except I think there's a lot of anecdotal cases. I think physically, I, I'm not a medical doctor, so I won't comment on the, whether or not it's possible to have further children. I, I think it probably is if you're still in the right age range. Emotionally, yeah, it can be really difficult, and but it also can be really therapeutic for the family. And so I think it's up to that family to decide whether they want to have another child after that. Definitely best to do with lots of talking and lots of support from various people. Our bereavement counsellor is really great at talking about those things with families. And I think it's different for every family, but I've certainly heard anecdotally of cases where they have chosen to have another child and it really helps the family to focus on a new little person and focusing on helping them to grow up and be the best they can be and potentially be the sibling, another sibling to any other brothers and sisters that were already in the family. So I think it really depends on that individual case, but it can be a helpful thing for some families if it's right, you know, and so it can be something that brings joy again to families at a
1: really difficult time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm and so the work that you do is it sounds incredibly rewarding but it also sounds incredibly confronting emotionally how do mm. you how do you care for your own health and well-being whilst caring for children and adolescents with cancer
0: lots of people ask me this it's sort of a bit of a party stopper at a you know if you meet someone at a function and they say where do you, where do you work and i say oh the kids cancer center and they sort of say oh that sounds really sad so i guess Um, It's a hard question to answer um, because I've never really worked anywhere else. So I don't know what it would be like working in another non-cancer environment. I started working in this space. Well, that reveals how old I am, but, you know, almost 20 years ago. So what I can say is I, I think I already knew that there were families having really difficult lives anyway. Uh, and I'd worked in other, I worked in brain injury, autism, blindness, for example. And so me sort of seeing it closer up doesn't make me feel worse about it than already knowing in theory that they have, there are families with really difficult circumstances. I don't know if that's a funny answer to the question. On a day-to-day basis, it's a happy place to be. It's not a sort of terribly sad environment. It's kind of very focused on, you know, there's music and the play therapists are there and, you know, it's a sort of happy environment. And there are, of course, really sad days and sad experiences and sad stories. But it's also really nice to be kind of doing something about it rather than just watching. And it sort of reminds you a bit, I guess, to be really grateful for the life you have and how well my kids are, for example. So I don't find it really depressing. I find it kind of and and enriching except for sad moments I guess so yeah that's probably my complicated answer to that I don't do anything specially unique about looking after myself that I wouldn't suggest you would do any in any environment I guess so I try and keep some really close connections with colleagues who in the same industry and know what it's like and so if things are really difficult they're probably my first port of call keep really well connected with my husband and uh, other friends who have nothing to do with cancer because it's important to not just only live in a bubble of people who work in cancer so sort of emotionally it's probably maintaining those connections with people who have the same kind of work people who definitely don't have the same kind of work and my family of course i also sort of spend try and spend a lot of time looking after my just general health. So sleeping well, eating well, doing a lot of exercise, those sorts of things, which I think everyone should do, no matter whether they work in, you know, any environment really. So yes, I I hope that kind of answers your question. Funnily enough, the thing that gets me down more is the sort of admin side of it or the forms or the bureaucracy. That sort of side makes me feel more flat than the family stories. And so probably I need the to go to the gym or dance or something to give me energy to keep going with the administrative, you know, slightly routine aspects of the work
1: more than the working with families. Yeah. Um, Has there been anything that you've learnt from your career that you've applied into your own life?
0: Oh, good question. I guess, I mean, I meant t- t- touched on a minute ago, I'm very grateful for my kids being really well. And so I guess it's sort of, it sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, keeping things in perspective. I try not to, you know, absolutely panic if something small goes wrong in the family because I am kind of aware of how lucky I am and my family are, etc., and also aware that that could change, you know, this you know, anything can change in a family in a day. So otherwise there are other aspects of the work that I guess I bring home in terms of, you know, you have to be really resilient and persistent to be a researcher and so I try and bring that home and instil that in my kids about, you know, often I have a good idea for a project or my team has a great idea for a project and then sometimes it takes two or three or four years before we convince a someone to give us the money to run it. And if you just gave up the first time, you know, you wouldn't be successful. And the same with papers. Sometimes we write a paper, which is fantastic. And it is literally rejected from seven different journals over the course of a year before finally it's published. And so I guess that's another element that I've learned at work of, you know, don't give up. If you think something's valuable, keep going, pushing, and pushing in a productive way, you know, get it better and better each time so that one day someone will see the value and fund it. So I probably brought that home as well (laughs) in terms of persistence and resilience in my house.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you really believe in the work that you're doing, you really have to persevere with it.
0: Absolutely. And it's most people don't disagree that it's important, but it can be hard to compete with all of the other important big needs out there and the other big grants there. And so it does has to not just be a good cause, but also scientifically excellent, you know, and scientifically really valid and novel and innovative, all of those elements. Can't just rely on the fact that, oh, that's really important topic. You have to also have the science behind it to make sure that it's going to have the biggest possible impact on not just Australia but the world. And so yeah, it is this sort of balance between value and excellence. So I think is really important to kind of continue as to sort of underlying values of my group.
1: Yeah. And last year I spoke with Lucy Marcel from Boston Medical Centre about how Mm. a parent who has a child with severe health conditions can impact the financial circumstance of the family. From the research you and your team have conducted, how does raising a child with cancer affect a parent's ability to work?
0: So this is really interesting because in theory, Australian families should be much better off than American families in this regard because We have a universal health system and so we are incredibly lucky to be able to offer free treatment for families of children with cancer. And so that is amazing. However, a lot of the research we've done has showed that actually despite that, there is still an enormous, enormous financial impact for families in Australia. And so we actually just published a new paper in the last couple of weeks um, that, particularly showed the impacts. It's not so much paying for treatment because that's often covered. There are a lot of -of out-of-pocket costs for our families. So as I mentioned, often families actually one parent and it's often disproportionately mums who quit work um, or reduce their hours severely, often for a long time, like two or three years. And so you often end up on one income. And then there's travel. So our sort of our or catchment area for our hospital is a thousand kilometres. And so our average family travels 250 kilometres to get to us. And so that's, you know, big travel costs either in, in car or, and then having to park in expensive uh, areas, etc. or even flying for some of our families regularly. Um, there are lots of other costs that aren't covered by the government or Medicare for sort of extra treatments or extra things that, might not be covered so there's a lot of kind of extras uh, in terms of costs. Our research showed that mothers are particularly hardest hit um, often because they might have also had multiple maternity leaves for their their children and then they have this other leave or they might you know they might come on top of each other because a lot of our kids are kind of two or three when they're diagnosed particularly with leukemia so they may already be pregnant or have had a recent maternity leave. So those sorts of double hits on a mother's career can really affect her ability to keep up. We also showed that families with a lower socioeconomic status to begin with are often hardest hit so there's less they have less resources to cope so it's quicker for there to be really significant impacts on the family so having to potentially sell their home or sell their business or something because there's less reserves there I guess to support them then we also actually talk to them about the positive elements like what what are what's what helps them to cope better and not have those impacts and the two key things were having understanding colleagues who and um, bosses who would be really flexible particularly so a flexible workplace where um, they could potentially work from home when the child was sleeping or work from the hospital when the child was sleeping or have extended um, paid leave and come back at the same level those sorts of things actually make a huge difference to being able to get back on their feet after cancer so despite us having the a great health system with universal health coverage. There still are a vast number of ways that parents are affected career-wise and also uh,
1: financially. Yeah. Um, Contrastingly, over in the US, a lot of these parents would say that they're not only their child's parent, but they're also their child's secretary, which I found Mm. interesting and, and quite bizarre.
0: Yeah, there's an enormous amount of paperwork And an enormous amount of kind of advocacy and logistics that parents are having to do. So they're really busy. Uh, There's all sorts of things around school where potentially, for example, they might end up being... Hopefully now we have that sorted in our hospital because we have an education liaison officer. But in the past, it used to be actually the parents often ended up in the role of bringing homework from school to the hospital and then back from the hospital to school so that the child could keep up and advocating for the child, for example, at school. So there's all sorts of ways in which there's you know, administrative work, advocacy work, standing up for their child in different environments that actually kind of fall to parents if they need special exam considerations and that's the parent who might have to do that. I hope in the last few years we've hired a couple of education liaison people who that's their role, their ex-teachers often, who actually do that and represent the child on behalf of the family
1: and do a lot of that work for them because, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, like Australia's got a really good healthcare system but as we discussed it, it's not perfect. Is there anything yeah. that Australia could b- borrow from other healthcare systems around the world that you think Australia could benefit from?
0: Studying in the education theme I think there are pockets of brilliance around the world to help kids to do better at school during their cancer treatment. Been looking at that a bit. So there's some areas in the US for example where There's funding for children to have at-home tuition and that is not, that is done to some extent here. Donald House Charities actually provide some support for that, which is, you know, invaluable but not extensive. I think they would agree with that. And so that's, for example, a program that we're thinking about. One of our PhD students actually who had cancer twice as a child herself, Clarissa, In the US, she had this wonderful experience of having a home tutor uh, come to her home and made a huge difference for her. And now she's gone on this path to become a PhD student herself, which is incredible achievement. And she gives some of that credit to the system that she went through that um, provided that. Yeah, there is a bit of a gap that there's a hospital school when you're in the hospital and then there's the hospital, uh, there's the school, but actually there's a lot of time spent at home recuperating and there's no one around for that time and so I think there's big room for improvement there and that to be government supported rather than supported by charities like Ronald McDonald House. Other areas where Australia could do better, I think, let me think, in general, we do do pretty well. I think possibly uh, physical exercise. So exercise physiologists, they're not commonly kind of part of standard care for our families. If that was, that would be a great improvement to have that kind of as part of the package that's supported by the health system rather than sort of fundraising on the side to support those roles. That would be a really big advance. The other thing which I mean, maybe it's a little dull, but <laughs> the other thing I think which would be amazing is um, I've spent quite a bit of time in Denmark and they have an incredible infrastructure around data. And so they can follow families and groups of families across all of their kind of health systems. So their medication data, their education data, their their hospital admissions, their primary care admissions, all of that is incredibly well Resourced and linked. And so they're actually in an amazing position to be able to do, to identify families who are having difficulties or groups of people who do better than others and those sorts of things, and then craft support programs around that. So I think Australia could probably do better in terms of our infrastructure around data and that, and data linkage and those sorts of things. So kind of dull, but pretty valuable if we could do better there.
1: Yeah. And all the administrative. Stuff. Um, things and all the information technology aspects of, of cancer are all, all important as much as the, the treatment itself.
0: Absolutely, and even more so now that we're sort of
1: moving into this genomics era,
0: data and the
1: computing power behind that is essential to be able to provide the best care for families. The link between cancer and depression and other mood-altering disorders is undeniably strong. Wakefield's work is focused on reducing this link and helping families to function as normally and happily as possible whilst dealing with a cancer diagnosis. I want you to imagine that you are in a room with 18-year-old Claire Wakefield. (laughs) What would you tell (laughs) your 18-year-old self?
0: (sighs) Oh, 18, It's a funny age. I was just sort of just starting uni. Um, look, I don't, I'm not someone who has huge regrets in life, so I'm not someone who would say do things differently when you're 18. I, I think I did the best I could at the time. I'd certainly say I, I was very focused on studying, which is a good thing, but I'd probably say give myself permission to have a bit more fun spend more time with my friends and make sure I focused on my health in, in the best possible way. So try. I had periods probably where I could have been more active or slept more or ate better and that wasn't for kind of a wild lifestyle. I'm sorry, I'm really boring. It was probably more because I studied a lot and so I'd probably encourage that kind of just to get outside more, live a bit, um, you know, have a bit more fun, spend more time with friends. But overall, I mean, yeah, I think probably the behaviours that I did then set me up to become the person I am now. So I wouldn't change a heap of things. Maybe just have more fun with it rather than being
1: so serious all the time. What career did 18-year-old Claire want?
0: I wanted to be a psychologist. So I haven't changed hugely I probably at the time didn't realise there was a career in, very specifically in cancer, and I probably didn't realise you could have a career in research. I sort of, I think I thought psychologists really just sat in a room one-on-one and gave therapy, and that's really important and valuable profession, but psychology is way bigger than that. I mean, there's so many fields you can go down and I've ended up in research which I love but there are a million other fields as well so I haven't been the sort of person who thought I'd be one thing and then turned out completely different because I'm a little bit you know determined and persistent but I probably didn't think I'd do this particular job back then Uh, but I think I would have been okay with it if I knew.
1: Yeah and particularly psycho-oncology which is a more emerging area of psychology and oncology.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it was in my psych 101 textbook as a thing back then. So yeah, it wasn't something. But probably health in general. I was always interested in health and well-being. So I think it would, yeah. So turned out well, I think in general. Gee, I had like great hair back then. <laughs> <laughs> it was like really blonde and super curly. Uh, so <laughs> I should have embraced that more too.
1: And lastly. What is one thing people can do to start living healthier today?
0: If you had to say one thing, I reckon I'd pick sleep. I think we're not sleeping enough. I think people are getting into really bad habits around sleep and actually sleeping well and sleeping consistently, regularly in a good, you know, with a good pattern has both physical and mental benefits and so you know physically you then have more energy you can do more during the day you know all of those sorts of things and then also mentally you can concentrate better you can be more productive you have often have a better mood and I think it sort of interacts with screen time and so for me I know lots of scrolling through my phone at 11 o'clock at night is not the best way to end up with a good sleep so that's something I'm still working on—my um, addiction to my phone. But I think if I had to choose one thing, I reckon that would have the biggest impact is at, to sleep well, and then that has flow-on effects to your appetite and to your energy and to your mood. So it kind of would have flow-on benefits for all other aspects of your well-being as well.
1: I love that decision-making process that you just went through. What? Yeah. What would be? The solution that would solve the most amount of problems and it was sleep. I love that. Yeah, it's it's well, a very scientific think way of thinking it's of it's things.
0: <laughs> it's like the domino effect, like which domino, because you said I could only choose one.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> so I'll which domino would then kind of split off and potential have benefits in multiple areas. So I reckon that's, that's the one I'll pick.
1: <laughs> it's interesting that you said phone use and sleep because on this podcast we actually have two guests that specialize in one does sleep and he's from england and Ah. we've got another guest from the us who built an app that helps people manage their phone use which is Ah. perfect yeah
0: oh yeah so i hope i didn't contradict them i hope
1: i backed them up (laughs) yes yes you backed them up
0: Yeah, I do have heavy reliance on the screen time apps myself because I mean, I have two teenage boys and a lovely daughter who's not quite a teen yet. And like, we often kind of criticize teenagers in general for being addicted to their phones, but then I'm like, I actually have the same problem. So I identify with it and we all use (laughs) screen time monitoring um, because I think it's just as difficult for adults as it is for teenagers. I don't think it's limited to them. Sometimes it's worse. I find myself Mm. finding it much harder to let go sometimes even than they do.
1: Yes, and surprisingly, it's the technology that was designed to be addictive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is something about it that really makes it hard to put down and... Yeah, so probably a new challenge for our young people today is to work out how to manage that best.
1: Whilst we can't change the cards we have been dealt in life, we can use what we already have and further nourish that to live a meaningful, purposeful and impactful life. What is one lesson you took away from this episode? Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it on Instagram Use the hashtag HealthierToday and tag Claire on Twitter at C.E. Wakefield and myself at JRedT. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people discover Healthier Today. Sign up to the email list to stay up to date on new interviews and articles by going to jarredtalavera.com. This podcast was produced by Andy White from AB Sound Production. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss out on new episodes. This was the final episode for Season 1. From the team at Healthier Today, we hope you have enjoyed these insightful episodes and learnt new ways to care for your own health. Here's to you living healthier today.